that testimony is a pretty good note to transition into our scripture for today, which is an interesting one to say the least. You know, I, as you may have noticed, I really like to preach through a book of the Bible at a time rather than jumping from, from topic to topic, thing to thing, as I feel inclined um, for a lot of different reasons. But one of them is that I'm consistently amazed at how God times things, where I happen to be moving through a book of the Bible and what happens to be going on in our church or in our world. So today we find ourselves just happen to be in Romans chapter 13, the beginning of Romans chapter 13, which is by far the most politically oriented passage in Romans. The Sunday before our election. How about that? Who would have thought? I mean, in in roughly three years that we're going to spend in Romans, that this Sunday we are in Romans 13. And one thing we've learned in Romans is that God is sovereign. So we're in this passage today for a reason. And by the way, before we get into it, one of the guys that I read to, to, in my research, he preached through the book of Romans. And when he hit chapter 13, it was year eight. So we are flying through Romans. Now we need to pray before we dive into Romans chapter 13. We're going to sort of cover verses one through seven. Um, we need to pray because this is a problem passage. This is a passage that uh, has been controversial over the years. Uh, This is a passage that some say has been pretty much universally misunderstood. It's a passage that others say Paul must not have even written it, that someone must have stuck it in there. Uh, It's a passage that some say uh, translators purposefully mistranslated in order to further empower the uh, rich and powerful and further oppress the poor. Um, it's a passage that some people have used to justify tyranny and dictatorships. Uh, so we need wisdom and we need guidance. And I'm going to be honest with you. This is going to be a weird sermon. And it's going to require a lot of work. Okay? So I need you to roll up your sleeves and work with me through some scripture today. Okay? Can we do that? All right. Good. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, I just, I praise you for these testimonies of gratitude. And I praise you for what I see you doing in the lives of your people in this church. Lord, I pray now that uh, as we spend a few moments together studying and really applying our minds to your word, that you would make all things plain to us, that you would speak to us clearly, that you would enable me to serve your people really well. And that we would be ignited with passion to worship you in all things, including our citizenship in this nation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Our passage is Romans 13, 1 through 7. That's where the PowerPoint is going to pick up with verse 1. I actually want to back up and read beginning with uh, chapter 12, verse 14. Because there really is no break between the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. These chapters and verse numbers are things that we put into the Bible just to help us stay organized and to help us communicate about it. 
but that wasn't there originally. So I think it's important to see what comes immediately, immediately before we get to today's passage. So I'm not going to have you stand today because we're, it's a pretty long section. Just uh, follow along in your Bibles or listen as we read. And I'm going to begin chapter 12, verse 14, and then we'll hit where it starts on the PowerPoint with 13.1. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And that's where we'll stop. So, this is pretty plain on the face of it. I think verse 1 is sums up the main point, and then the following verses are sub-points. Let every person, literally every soul, let every person be subject to the governing authorities to put oneself under their influence of whatever authorities may be. So very plainly, what he's saying is Christians... Be subject to the authorities that are in place over you. Tuesday, we will either continue with our current president or we will move forward with a new president. Either way, our mandate is the same. Be subject to those in authority over us. Why? 
In verse 1 he says the reason why, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay? So, so far what we see, I'm just using the election because it's just such a blatant, obvious opportunity and example. You know, come Tuesday, whoever is invested with authority as president, it comes from God. He is the holder of authority. So the principle here is, whether it's taken by force, whether it's done by democratic vote, there is no authority except God-given authority. Now, are you starting to sense some of the problems that arise as we think about this? Many objections arise. I want to deal with one that I consider minor, and then we'll basically spend the whole rest of our time together dealing with the second one. The one that I consider minor Um, some people object to this and they say, well, Paul uses the word authorities to refer to spiritual beings. He must be talking about spiritual beings. And I can see where one would get that conclusion. He does use that word authorities to speak of spiritual beings. But the Bible also uses that word to speak of human government. And I see nowhere where spiritual beings are referred to as ministers of God, um, of working good. Paul always speaks of them in the negative. I don't see any place where Paul says to be, put yourself in subjection to them. So I think that's one reason to reject that interpretation. I think another one that I find even better is just the context of the paragraph. He's talking about judicial punishment. He's talking about taxes. He's talking about human government. Okay? If you... Reject that. We can talk more about it later. Um, Okay, so the second objection. Surely he's only talking about good human authorities. Surely this does not apply to evil human authorities. That's the second objection. Most commonly, people point to Hitler. Surely this isn't talking about Hitler. And much of what you read, it'll actually stick Hitler's name in there. So that it reads this way. Let every person be subject to Hitler. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists Hitler resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Sticky passage, isn't it? Okay. I will likely stir up more trouble than I solve. Um, As I prepare for this and read for this, I haven't read this much in preparation for a sermon in a long time. The bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger it got. This taps into a big vein in Scripture. Big in content and just just big in in, uh, glory. It taps into a glorious vein about who our Lord is, who our God is. And how we are to think about being citizens in lowercase k kingdoms. Um, so in short, I do believe he is referring to all authorities. For one, that's what he says. So it's important to read what he says and not come to it with what we think and try to jam it in there and move it around and make it fit what we already think. Okay? Uh, I think that because it's what he says, I think that because of the context of Romans and the rest of Scripture. Now, 
I want to say this to relieve a little bit of pressure from you as we get into this so that you're not thinking I'm like an undercover Nazi or something. Far from it. I think he's writing into a specific situation here to a specific audience when he writes to the church in Rome. And I think in that context, it makes sense for him to land so heavy on submit to the authorities people. I think he's writing to a rebellious, people prone to rebellion in a time that is ripe for rebellion. And I'll explain that in a little bit. So in the same way, when my kids disobey, I say, obey your parents. And I don't go into, unless they say something that contradicts with what the other one says, and then you may need further information. I don't go into the exceptions. I just say the rule, obey your parents. I'm here as an authority over you. Obey me. I don't go into, unless I got hit on the head and I'm saying crazy stuff, and then don't. You know, we we major on the, the general rule, the general principle, often. I feel like that's what he's doing here, because clearly there are exceptions. But he's not talking about the exceptions right now. Generally, 99% of the time, Christians be in subjection to those in authority over you in terms of the government, because God put them there and gave them that authority. Okay, so now's where it gets uh, intense. Man, it's already 11.54. Okay, we'll go as far as we can go. Maybe we'll finish up next week. We'll see what happens. Okay, you're going to need your Bibles or you're going to need to listen hard because what I want to do is go back. We'll start in Exodus and we're just going to see a lot of examples of how God has told us to interact with government. And what I'm hoping is it'll paint a more comprehensive picture of who we are as citizens of the capital K kingdom living as citizens of the lowercase k kingdoms, such as America. Okay? You with me? You excited? Doesn't matter. I'm going anyway. So we start in Exodus. So you can find it if you'd like. Exodus chapter 1. Okay, Exodus chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 15 through 21. Okay, so this is the passage in which Pharaoh, the authority, tells some midwives to go and kill some babies. Okay? So maybe the midwives thought, well, wait a minute, as a Christian, I need to be subject to the governing authorities. Do you think they went and killed the babies? Well, let's read and find out. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. Name idea, if anybody's having a little girl's coming up, Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like us Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. 
So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Okay, so here we have an example of an exception. Okay, Paul says the rule is be subject to the governing authorities. But when the governing authorities order you to do something that your higher authority, God, has already ordered you not to ever do, such as kill babies, you now have permission to defy the governmental authorities. Okay? So, Mitt or Barak shows up at your house and says, I want you to go kill some babies. You don't have to do that. Fair? Okay. Let's go forward. Exodus 9, chapter, uh, no, Exodus nine sixteen. This is when Moses and is interacting with Pharaoh. So God allows his people, Israel, to be enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years. 400 years. And then he decides, it's time now for Pharaoh to let my people go. Sends Moses. Moses goes and interacts with Pharaoh. Okay. This is where we find uh, 9.16 in Exodus. It says, But for this purpose I, God, have raised you, Pharaoh, up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Okay, so here's another important principle. Principle one we saw, subject to authorities, unless or up until they are commanding you to do something that God has clearly commanded you never to do, such as kill babies. Okay? Another principle here, God sometimes works through oppressive government leadership for a reason, such as in the case of Pharaoh enslaving God's people for 400 years so that God could show his power, so that God could be glorified. Now, that confronts our uh, humanistic thought pattern right away, doesn't it? We think that it must be out of God's control if it is uncomfortable or bad for us. If God allowed us, Americans, or even just Christians within America, to be enslaved for 400 years, can you imagine that? Four hundred, four centuries. But for this purpose, I have raised up you, Pharaoh, as an authority for the purpose to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed through all the earth. So God may be up to something that we don't understand. It may be four centuries before he reveals what he's doing and why he's doing it. So here's an example of authority, even of a wicked ruler coming from the Lord. Okay? Okay, let's move forward to 1 Kings chapter 12. I know you don't go to 1 Kings a whole lot, most of you, I bet. It may take you a second to find it. 1 Kings chapter 12. First Kings chapter 12, uh, we'll start with verse 14. Okay, here's another oppressive ruler who is oppressing God's people, Israel. 
And the ruler spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father, this ruler's father, was also oppressive over Israel. My father made your yoke heavy. I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. This does not sound like a godly leader. Verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by, I'm going to butcher that name, Ahijah, I don't know, Ahia, <laughs> the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So here we have clearly a viciously wicked ruler doing viciously wicked things to God's people. And this whole turn of affairs brought about by whom? By who? The Lord. And this time is to bring about, to fulfill his word, which he had spoken before. Okay, let's keep moving. Let's go, let's skip that one. Let's go into Jeremiah. That's after the big ones, the Psalms and Proverbs. Jeremiah, after Isaiah. Jeremiah 27. I'm going to read you two passages out of Jeremiah. One of which the prophet Jeremiah speaks to the leaders. And the next one, the prophet Jeremiah speaks to the people. Jeremiah 27. I'll read verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> so Nebuchadnezzar had, you know, destroyed God's people's land, taken them captive. And the prophet Jeremiah says to him, Nebuchadnezzar, on behalf of God, it is I, God, who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own, until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Here we see God moving, moving kings and kingdoms around the playing board, totally in control, and yet the outcome right now being his people being oppressed and their lands taken. Okay, chapter 29, one page over, verses 4 through 7, Jeremiah speaking to the people. And this is really interesting, I think. Maybe you're thinking, I'm ready for lunch, but I think this is really interesting. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He's talking to the people, God's people that were ripped from their lands and their homes and taken into enemy land, Babylon. Just imagine if that was us. Some foreign enemy comes, uproots us, exiles us from America into their enemy land, okay? This is what God tells the prophet to say to them. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens 
eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Okay, so God's people are not only to live and thrive and build culture and be fruitful and multiply and pray for their leaders in a land where the leadership is godly. Even when God's people are ripped from their own lands, exiled into an enemy land, they are to live and build and thrive and pray for their leaders. It would have been so easy for Jeremiah to say, okay, here's what the Lord's saying. These people are cruel, they're evil, they took your lands. It's time to go overthrow them. I know you're weak, but God is strong. We'll take them down. But that's not at all what God tells them. Okay. Let's move into Daniel. Some of you may be thinking about Daniel. There's some good stories about the exceptions in Daniel. Look at Daniel chapter 3. Here we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay? In exile. Let's see, where was I going to read? 3. We'll look at verses 16 through 18. Okay. The king tells them that they're going to be cast into a burning furnace if they don't worship the big gold statue, the idol that he created. Okay? Now up to that point, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been doing what Jeremiah said, living in exile. And here they come up to a wall. God, their higher authority, the capital K king, said don't worship idols. Now the lowercase k king is saying worship this idol. And here's how they respond. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you're going to throw us into this fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if God chooses not to, even though he could, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So they still call him, O king. They're not being rebellious, disrespectful people. They're just standing strong. They've reached the end of what they can do in subjection to this authority. It has bumped up against the higher authority, God, the king with a capital K. Clearly, we're not to bow down and worship idols. We're not to kill babies. We're not to worship idols. There are lines drawn there. So you know the story. They do get thrown in. And they go. They don't say, no, God, send down the angels and stop this. They just, they go. Still in subjection to the king with a lowercase k. Now, thankfully, in this case, the Lord does provide, he does save them. We're not promised that that's always going to happen. Daniel in the lion's den 
Same thing. In this case, he was told to stop doing something that he knew that he must continue to do. Pray. King said, no more praying to, to any God. Daniel said, well, you know, I've been a faithful servant to this king with the lowercase k, but it, I have to obey the king with the capital K at this point. And then he accepts the consequences, which is to be sealed into a uh, sort of a cave with lions in it. Again, more exceptions. But even through these passages, you see things like, let's see, I'll read a couple of these to you. You see things like Daniel 4, 25, where it says, uh, God's message to King Nebuchadnezzar in his dream is, you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. See, this theme of God being the king of kings runs all through Daniel, where we see these exceptions where they stand up. The king is in charge of what the kings are doing. He's in control. He's powerful enough. Okay, I want to get into the New Testament. We're not going to finish this whole thing this morning, but I want to talk about Jesus for just a minute. And then next week, we'll, we'll conclude this thought with more practical implications for us as Americans. But we need to talk about Jesus before you go, okay? When Jesus came on the scene, we're going to celebrate it. Christmas is coming up. When he arrived, he did not arrive into a government that was godly. When he arrived, slavery was rampant. Some resources said that there was probably about three slaves to every one free person. The vast majority of people were slaves. When he came on the scene, the authority had absolute authority. He could say, go and kill all the children born in this region, and it happened. Remember when Jesus was born, they were killing all his kids. That came down from the authority. When Jesus came on the scene, taxation was exorbitant and corrupt. You know, the tax collectors, you know, they would collect the tax, but then they would collect even more just so they could live off of it, just so that they could be rich. Okay? So, it's within that atmosphere that we see in John chapter 12 where they come to him and they say should we pay our taxes Jesus we know they're corrupt we know they're collecting more than they need you know now now that we're followers of your kingdom can we stop paying these taxes and he's so flippant about it he says give me a denarius give me a dollar whose picture's on it Caesar's give to Caesar what's Caesar's pay your taxes even though it's this massively corrupt system, he's like, just, just pay your taxes. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. And that's the end of his discussion of it. And then he meets Zacchaeus. You remember the song? Zacchaeus, he was just a wee little man. And he climbed up in a sycamore tree. And Jesus came and said, Zacchaeus, come down here. I'm going to eat dinner with you today. Zacchaeus is one of these tax collectors. 
Okay, you can look this up if you want to. It's in uh, Luke chapter 19 is a good place. Zacchaeus is one of these tax collectors. Jesus goes and spends time with this tax collector, part of the authority structure. Okay, Zacchaeus becomes a Christian and he says, I'm going to give half of everything I own to the poor. I'm going to try to undo all the damage I've done. I'm going to try to change. And that's great. But that's a perfect microcosm example of how Jesus' kingdom works. Jesus didn't make that stand there that day when he said, render to Caesar and say, we've got to overthrow this corrupt structure. He goes to an individual and says, I'm going to change your heart and transform you completely. Government structures are going to come and go. People are going to last forever. The kingdom with a capital K is built of people. These kingdoms with lowercase k's are all going to be gone one day. And Jesus never made the kingdoms with a lowercase k a priority. He always made the people a priority. And so it is today. I want to go to there, but I'm going to save that. Okay, here's how I'll wrap up today, and then we'll work through the New Testament next week, if any of you choose to come back for that. I hope you do, because this is awesome. Um, Yeah, okay, this is how I'll end today. You know, a lot of the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And do you remember one of the main sticking points? We thought you were going to come overthrow these corrupt government structures and authorities. And you're not even talking about it. And you're sitting here eating dinners with tax collectors and sinners. I feel like we may be in danger of making the same mistakes that those Jews did. Of placing these expectations of Jesus to swoop in and change America. If, if America is going to be changed, it's going to be changed through the gospel spreading the kingdom with a capital K through the hearts of individuals. It's going to happen through the slow, silent, subtle work of discipleship. It's not going to happen through political action. Let's end with that thought and then come next week when we'll see more about how this has to do with the gospel and how this has to do with worship and what this means for us as citizens of America. Okay? Good. Let's pray. Father, you are so glorious. And uh, I, I work through a book like Romans and I hit something like chapter 13 and I think, well, this is interesting. And then you just blow me away with how it's, it's not just interesting, it's majesty and it's glory. Lord, you are our king. You are our Lord. We confess together that you are king of all kings, Lord of all lords. We, Christians in this room, profess our allegiance to you above every other allegiance. And we invest our trust in you over every other authority. And in so doing, I pray that you would help us to go and build your kingdom while being citizens of this kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.